2: From KQED. On today's California Report magazine, we explore the hidden history of slavery in California. Yes, when California became a state in 1850, it was a free state. But sometimes that was in name only. We'll hear about a slave market that once operated in downtown Los Angeles.
0: In the 1850s, this was a site of an auction where human beings were bought and sold on a weekly basis. And the product for sale was Native Americans.
2: And we'll learn about an African-American woman born into slavery who helped build the western hub of the Underground Railroad right here in California.
3: She was very used to being covert, and she often said that words were made to conceal feelings and that she was good at it. Plus, we visit an urban market that gives
2: artists and entrepreneurs a place to share and celebrate their Native identity today.
1: Strong indigenous babes all around is my theme of work.
2: <laughs> but first, a new show explores how the transatlantic slave trade shaped dance and culture for young people in contemporary Oakland. I'm Sasha Coca and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. That's a piece from a new production of The Nutcracker that's hitting the stage in Oakland this holiday season. It's a twist on the traditional ballet.
1: There's no Nutcracker and there's no mouse in our show.
2: And there's no Clara either. Instead, 13-year-old dancer Amalinda Oregunwa performs the lead role of Nzinga. She travels the African diaspora exploring the legacy of slavery for African-Americans and Afro-Latinos here in the United States through different kinds of dance.
1: There's Afro-Haitian, there's Afro-Cuban, there's all the different Orisha dances, there's ballet, there's modern jazz, there's hip-hop, there's break dancing and
2: flamenco. It's called Cola, an Afro-diasporic remix of The Nutcracker. And I'm here with Roz Nash. She's the founder and director of The People's Conservatory, the dance company putting on the show. Hi, Roz. Hey, Sasha. How are you? Good. Good to have you here. So there are several African-American versions of The Nutcracker out there, from Debbie Allen's Hot Chocolate to the hip-hop Nutcracker. What makes this show different?
1: Ours really tours the globe. Um, and really focuses on not only the dances and the music from different cultures, but also some of their gods and their spirits and some of their practices. And uh, so we work orishas into our work from the Ife tradition. And we are also focusing on a really different kind of innovative narrative that we created, uh, which really is not like the Nutcracker at all. So tell us a little bit about the plot. How does it reimagine the Nutcracker? Uh, Well, we still have uh, a young girl who's a protagonist. Um, Her name is Nzinga, she's 13, and um, she's desperately looking for connection. Um, She's looking to find her roots and and, and what what it is about this world that that is meant for her to explore. And so um, we take her on a journey, um, along, basically along the transatlantic slave trade from West Africa to Brazil. To Cuba, to Haiti, to Spain, uh, and we end up back in the continental US. And all of this is done through these diasporic dances and music and movement and culture. We have an incredible creative team that helped us to make this possible so that we could kind of jump from one (laughs) kind of part of uh, culture to another. And our musical director, Kev Choice, um, has really been able to. Uh, kind of harness all these different styles and pull them together and make it really seamless. And he's he's been incredible um, as well as our writing team Jennifer Johns and Ryan Nicole who helped me create the narrative. What does this show
2: tell us about the legacy of slavery in California specifically?
1: It's more about how uh, slavery has affected. I would say how uh, folks exist and and navigate the world, and how folks in in Oakland say are are navigating the world because of what their lineage had to suffer. So
2: I came to a rehearsal of the show, and I saw that it involves a lot of kids. (laughs) Uh, So tell me about about the People's Conservatory.
1: Who are these young performers? Um, The People's Conservatory started about a year and a half ago, but I've been uh, working with these youth for five years at a school called Roses and Concrete, um, where I was the director of performing and visual arts. And we basically created an integrated arts school. And, uh, and now that we are in 10 schools, we're able to, you know, provide services to many more people and young people and, uh, and some of our students have gone off to other places and it's a way for us to still, still kind of keep them in the fold and still work with them and help them to develop their art.
2: One of the other dancers that I met at rehearsal yes. was Makeda Booker. Yes. She's 13 and, and she shares the role, the lead role of Nzinga right. with Amalinda. She told me that for her, the most challenging thing is moving between all of these different styles of dance.
1: Sitting up really straight for ballet to having to bend down, and get really low to the floor for like West African kinds of dance. And so you have to switch that on and off very fast.
4: In the process, I've learned a lot of just how people have used dance to keep their history alive.
1: Makeda is an incredible young woman. She and Amalinda both. And the way they've been able to navigate all of these different styles so seamlessly is really incredible. I don't know if I would have been able to do that at 13. So I'm just so proud of them.
2: Well, I met some parents at the rehearsal, too, and they seem really into it. I talked to one mom whose eight-year-old is breakdancing in the show.
3: My son has taken to it like he is from 1980. So that's Brandy
2: Mitchell. She's talking about her son, Taj.
3: This for him is just embracing a part of his natural self and giving him the ability of exploring something that he's good at, he likes, and being honored because of it. It's not like, oh, just sit down, you move too much, which is typically what you would have, but instead they're like, go, Taj, and, you know, just the embrace.
2: So it does seem like some of what they're learning, too, is Oakland history. I mean, Nzinga's mom in this production is a Black Panther. How does the dance teach the kids in it and those in the audience about the history of Oakland, this place that's undergoing so much dramatic change and, and gentrification right now?
1: For sure, for sure. And that's um, that's actually something that's really um, germane to the People's Conservatory in general, uh, just because we want to make sure that... We're meeting students where they are. Um, we're creating content with them um, that has to do with the history of where they live and who they are and where they come from and their indigeneity. So the history of Oakland is is really important um, um, to learning about oneself. You know, how did you get here? How did your family get here? You know what you know what are some of the you know some of the revolutionary background that comes from a lot of our students' households and families. Um, we want to um, highlight that. Roz Nash, thank you so much
2: for joining us. Pleasure. Roz Nash is the artistic director and producer of Cola, an Afro-diasporic remix of The Netcracker, which opens December 12th in Oakland. It's dusk, and in the shadow of looming Victorian mansions, a tour guide decked out in a costume from the 19th century leads an excited group along the steep streets of San Francisco. All ghost hunters, gather around, gather around. On this ghost hunt, every corner brings another ghoulish story from San Francisco history. And under a row of eucalyptus trees, the guide pauses to place his flickering lantern down on the sidewalk, to illuminate an engraved stone plaque.
5: Okay, it reads, Mother of Civil Rights in California. She supported the Western terminus of the Underground Railway for Fugitive Slaves, 1850 to 1865. This legendary pioneer once lived on this site and planted these six trees.
2: That's KQED's Carly Severn. And she's going to tell us about Mary Ellen Pleasant a woman born into slavery in the South, who became a civil rights icon. Yet, she was demonized in her own lifetime.
0: And she was said to be worth $30 million. For anybody, any time, that is an accomplishment. For a woman in the Victorian time, quite an accomplishment. For an African-American woman,
2: for that time, almost unheard of, almost.
5: Our guide tells us that the ghost of Mary Ellen Pleasant haunts this spot summoning chills and frightening dogs. Thing is, after the thrill-seeking's over and the crowds have dispersed into the twilight, one thing remains true. Mary Ellen Pleasant, the flesh-and-blood woman, was very real. So why is this a stop on a ghost hunt for some in San Francisco the only time they learn her name? I wanted to talk to the one person who knows her better than most, Sacramento writer Sushil Bibbs, who studied Mary's story for decades.
3: Her life is so enshrouded in mystery because she was her own spin doctor.
5: Mary wrote three autobiographies, but each one contradicts each other. Here's what we do know about her.
3: She was born a slave in Georgia. She was raised in Nantucket in indenture.
5: There on the East Coast, years before she came to San Francisco, Mary was a crucial figure in the civil rights fight secretly teaming up with abolitionists and rescuing escaped slaves on the Underground Railroad. In this world, nothing could ever
3: be as it seemed. She was very used to being covert, and she often said that words were made to conceal feelings and that she was good at it.
5: And that double life included presenting as a white woman when she could. Early on, she married well and rich. And when she was widowed, she inherited all that
3: money. $45,000 in gold from her husband's estate.
5: And she made the journey by steamer to San Francisco in 1852, still passing as white. She found a town filled with men come to make their gold rush fortunes. They were far from home and needed somewhere to live. So Mary buys up boarding houses and laundries
3: all kinds of things that she thinks will be a niche in San Francisco to make more money.
5: The early connections Mary forged in these places and the secrets she overheard became her leverage to further her real course, bringing the Underground Railroad out west. She provided legal aid and shelter to Archie Lee, the enslaved man from Mississippi who sought freedom in California after his so-called owner brought him here it's likely she hand-delivered a significant amount of money to the abolitionist John Brown to help finance his famous raid on the Virginia federal arsenal. And through all this, only San Francisco's growing black community knew her as a black woman. They called her the Black City Hall, the place you go to get what you need
3: she helped African Americans get jobs on steamers and in homes and in in her own businesses.
5: She led what's called the Franchise League, flexing her legal muscle to test new laws that finally allowed black people to testify in court. And almost a century before Rosa Parks, Mary Ellen Pleasant challenged her new city's segregated public transit system.
3: She won in and out of court, and in 1868, African-Americans could ride the trolleys in San Francisco.
5: And the fact that one of her legal challenges went all the way to the state Supreme Court set a precedent. Mary's the reason that under California law, victims of discrimination can now sue for pain and suffering. After the Civil War, over a decade after she arrived in San Francisco, Mary finally checked the box that said black on the census of 1865. Sue who also performs as Mary on stage, reads from her memoirs. My cause was the
3: cause of freedom and equality for myself and for my people. And I'd rather be a corpse than a
5: coward. But by the 1880s, the wild, mud-caked San Francisco that Mary Ellen Pleasant, the capitalist, had carved her way into had itself transformed. Very much more overtly racist. Mm -hmm. Across the nation, emancipated slaves became a convenient scapegoat for the economy's woes. And as a rich, prominent black woman, Mary now inspired suspicion, even fear. And that is how a heroine becomes a villain. Now the press coined a racist nickname, Mammy Pleasant. And when a young friend of hers took a senator to court, the papers seized on Mary's appearances at the trial. Painting her as a sinister crone with an otherworldly hold over the white people she was close to. But rather than rejecting the rumors, she defied them, encouraged them even during the senator's trial.
3: At one point, she planted a voodoo doll and said that, you know, he would die. Uh, he did die during the trial, the course of the trials. But to
5: Mary, voodoo wasn't just some scare tactic, it was voodoo a belief system from her ancestral homeland of Haiti. Scandal followed scandal. When her white, wealthy business partner was found dead in her mansion, his widow orchestrated a full-page smear piece in the San Francisco Chronicle. The headline?
4: The Queen of the Voodoos.
5: The press had used the language of the supernatural to describe her for years. Now, they made her into a flat-out monster. And the public turned on her.
3: They exploited those rumors and called her a blackmailer. They called her a baby stealer. So I would say that it was hate, revenge and racism.
5: Mary Ellen Pleasant died in 1904, in her 90s. After such a life, so many achievements, this was the obituary she received in the San Francisco Examiner.
0: Mammy Pleasant will work weird spells no more.
5: It's telling who gets a legend and who gets a ghost story. How we're remembered depends on who's telling your story. For the California Report, I'm Carly Seven.
2: You're listening to The California Report magazine. We're exploring the hidden history of slavery in California and its legacy today. Over the next few months, we'll be bringing you more stories about some of this little-known history. Like, did you know that California's first governor was a Southern slaveholder who had a vision for a whites-only state? Or that not all former slaves in California in the 1850s and 60s were legally free? they could still be recaptured by their masters and taken back to the South. Some were even rented out or sold to white Californians. I'm standing on the steps of the federal courthouse on Main Street in downtown Los Angeles. Today, this is a busy courthouse, but long before this was a place where people came to seek justice, it was a place that was symbolic of the incredible injustice of slavery. This was the site of a Native American slave auction. Even though slavery was supposed to be banned in California, auctioning off native people was totally legal here in the 1850s. And I'm standing here with Robert Peterson, He's the host of the podcast The Hidden History of Los Angeles. And he's a lawyer himself, so he spends a lot of time going in and out of courthouses. But Robert, you dug up some pretty interesting history about this one.
0: So in the 1850s, this was a site of an auction where human beings were bought and sold on a weekly basis. And the product for sale was Native Americans.
2: I think it's so surprising because we think of California as a free state. We think of California as a place that was... You know, vehemently opposed to slavery, a place where people could find freedom.
0: Uh, Slavery was outlawed, but I think sometimes we forget that actually, specifically in Los Angeles, a lot of people did sympathize with the Confederacy and did not necessarily have a problem with slavery.
2: So how did this market work? I mean, they didn't call it a slave market. It wasn't the same as the, the kinds of auctions where we saw Africans
0: being sold. It was different. Some people have kind of referred to it as indentured servitude. So the way it worked was uh, local ranchers and uh, vineyard owners started paying their Native American workers in alcohol. So the work week went in on Saturday and then they'd get paid alcohol. And that Saturday night they would go out a block from here down to the plaza and drink alcohol. And then later that Saturday night or Sunday morning, the town marshal, American lawmen, would come and arrest the Native Americans for drunkenness, throw them back in a corral back here, and Monday morning there'd be an auction, and the the vineyard owners and uh, ranchers could actually pay the fine, and then in return, that Native American would have to work for them for one week. And then again, the cycle of alcohol-induced arrest and forced servitude would continue, and this vicious cycle repeated by some estimates up to 20 years. It was very routine. There's letters that I've looked at where, you know, vineyard owners will say, go down to the, go down to Downey Block and pick me up a couple Indians. One local writer did refer to it as a slave mart at the time. Author uh, and historian Robert Heiser called it a thinly disguised substitute for slavery.
2: What was the law that allowed white people to do this?
0: Well, The ironically named California Act for the Government and Protection of Indians of 1850 allowed any white person to post bail for convicted Native Americans and then require the Native American to work for the white man until the fine was discharged. And imitating the state law, the Los Angeles City Council passed its own ordinance in 1850 which allowed prisoners to be auctioned off to the highest bidder for private service. And some people actually have even commented to me, well, why did not the Native Americans just not, you know, engage? And I think it's important to realize that, that Native Americans in 1850s had very few rights. It's not like they could just go get another job somewhere else. Native Americans in California during the 1850s, uh, they could not gain citizenship, they could not vote, they could not testify against a white person in court, or own a gun to protect themselves.
2: What were the names of the tribes that were here?
0: And so the biggest tribe around here is generally called the Tongva. Uh, There are some people who call it the Keech. There is a dispute as to what is a proper way to refer to it. A lot of history books will refer to them as the Gabrielanos because they were associated with the San Gabriel mission, which is the closest mission to here.
2: Is there any kind of a plaque here at this courthouse that commemorates the history?
0: There is no plaque that I know of whatsoever. There's been a couple of cases here where Native American tribes have, have come here for cases to try to seek justice, where there's been protest, and My guess would be a lot of those Native Americans probably don't know what happened to their ancestors on the very uh, place where they're standing.
2: Robert Peterson is the host of the podcast The Hidden History of Los Angeles, and he told us about the 1850s slave market that once took place here at the federal courthouse in downtown Los Angeles. The legacy of slavery, genocide, and forced relocation still lingers for many Native Americans in California today. But there's a place in Oakland where Native people can come together once a month to acknowledge that history and celebrate their identity through food, art, and music. The California Report's Marisol Medina Cadena went to check it out.
0: Welcome to the Red Market. Here in Oakland, California, on 31st and International at the Native American Health Center.
4: This space is usually a dusty gravel parking lot. But today, it's been transformed into a vibrant marketplace with pop-up tents and a stage in the center. The Wapipaw Kitchen food stand is slammed with customers. They're here for the elderberry hibiscus tea and kickapoo chili. A thick soup of bison and hominy topped with microgreens and a corn cake on the side.
1: And it's something um, out of Oklahoma that is um, very inspired by my grandmother, actually, and all the Kickapoo ladies that are from
4: Mexico all the way up to Oklahoma, to Kansas, to Michigan. That's chef Crystal Wapipaw. Her family moved here from Oklahoma not long after the 1956 Indian Relocation Act a law that encouraged Native Americans to leave their reservations for cities. The federal government circulated posters that promised, quote, good jobs and happy homes in places like Oakland, with the expectation that Native Americans would, in the government's view, assimilate. But Crystal's family refused to abandon their culture. Instead, they got involved with the local American Indian movement held on to their traditional foods.
1: From the elders, they're always saying, um, this tastes like when I was a kid, or it brings back a lot of memories. And just me being an indigenous chef, I like just
4: um, taking something from my ancestors and bringing it in. Growing up in Oakland, surrounded by Native Americans from all tribes, Crystal wondered why there weren't any Native American restaurants. That's what ultimately inspired her to study recipes from her Kickapoo heritage.
1: You've got 20 minutes to work.
4: Fast forward a couple of All years, she became the first Native chef to appear on Food Network's CHOP.
1: Native Americans don't use tortellini goat milk stuff in our food. <laughs> so this is a little bit out of my element, but I'm a fighter and I'm determined and I do go after my goals.
4: Now, Crystal has a popular catering business, but the Indigenous Red Market is her favorite place to share her food. When we do food booths, this is the one I like doing because, one, it represents of who I am, where I'm from. That feeling is shared by many of the other Native vendors here. As artist Jackie Fawn puts it, the market is like... That weekend kickback where all your aunties and uncles are hanging out, you know, showcasing their work and supporting each other. The Indigenous Red Market also provides space for advocates and artists to address social and environmental issues, like pipelines running through sacred lands. Jackie shows me one of her favorite posters, a colorful illustration that gives me Sailor Moon vibes. A woman riding a horse into battle, fighting
1: a black snake, which symbolizes the pipelines, and her hair is flowing and like the water, and there's like fish in her hair going real hard into the sun. The strong indigenous babes all around is my theme of work.
4: <laughs> On the other side of the market, I meet up with Desiree Adams. She's posted up with her handcrafted hoop earrings, beaded in the pattern of Dene baskets, but with the colors of local sports teams, like the A's and the Warriors. She says her jewelry weaves together her Dene culture and her Bay Area style. A lot of people think we're just all one tribe, but we're... Multiple tribes, multiple clans, and um, we're, you know, we're just
1: just trying to bring awareness to who we are as people and let
4: society know that we're still here. That's what draws indigenous people to this market, from near and far, from L.A. to Sacramento. Because it's a place to honor and share their different histories. To close out the day, a member of the all Nations singers invites the crowd to a communal dance. Toddlers, 20-somethings, and elders link arms forming a circle. And together, they step to the beat of the drum.
5: All right, let's give yourselves a big round of applause again for being out here at the Indigenous Red Market. Thank you for your time, thank you for your participation, thank you for your good vibes.
4: And then folks hug it out and make plans to see each other at the next market. For The California Report, I'm Marisol Medina-Cadena in Oakland.
2: That's The California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our show today is part of a collaboration called Gold Chains, the Hidden History of Slavery in California. It's a partnership with the ACLU of Northern California, Equal Justice Society, Laura Atkins, and the California Historical Society. You can find out more at goldchainsca.org. And stay tuned for more stories in the series over the coming months. Our director is Susie Racho. Seal Muller is our technical producer, with additional engineering from Rob Spate. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleone. The California Report's editorial team also includes Olivia Allen Price, Asala Sanapur, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California
1: Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, presenting Tradeoffs, a new podcast that tries to make sense of our costly and complicated healthcare system. Subscriptions at tradeoffs.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org.